Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Sharad Goyle. Sharad is an assistant professor in the Management Science and Engineering Department at Stanford University. Sharad, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So we are going to dive into a conversation about your paper, The Measure and Mismeasure of Fairness, A Critical Review of Fair Machine Learning. But before we do that, you've got an interesting background. You have joint appointments or courtesy appointments, actually, to be more precise, uh, in um, the computer science, sociology, and the law school at Stanford, in addition to your primary appointment at uh, management science and engineering. Yeah, how did you come to work at the confluence of uh, these many disparate areas? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, definitely unusual intersection that I'm working in. I hope more people start working in this area. I guess I had a slightly non-traditional path to university. I did my PhD in math. Um, I did a postdoc in math. And then I kind of realized maybe it wasn't exactly for me, that kind of traditional academic math path. And I went off to industry first at Yahoo and then at Microsoft. And I spent seven years um, doing, I guess, I guess we were doing data science, but it wasn't really called data science at that point. And I did that for a while. And I started um, really becoming interested in applied statistical, applied machine learning problems, um, this so-called big data, distributed computing, and especially how they were applied to social science questions. And so again, at that point, I was, you know, this was kind of the, people were still trying to figure out what's going on with Facebook, Twitter, and these were kind of the early days for network analysis. Um, And there was a sense that there was something that computer scientists could bring to these questions, these social scientific questions, but it wasn't exactly sure what that was. And so I was fortunate enough to to be um, in some of these places that was that were driving these conversations. So that was my first kind of foray into this intersection of computer science and social science. And then at the end of my time in industry, I started becoming even more interested in policy questions. Uh, I was living in New York at the time, and I became quite interested in in policing practices. Stop and frisk was in the news, uh, as it is actually reoccurring now in the news. Um, there are a lot of high-profile court cases. Uh, there was a, a high-profile uh, mayor's race, and the, the police chief ultimately was was replaced. And so I, you know, was coming at it from the perspective of what you know what can we say that goes beyond the traditional legal and policy analysis to these questions that I thought were, you know, super important. I wanted to get involved, but I wasn't quite sure what that involvement would look like. And what we ended up doing is, you know, there's this one line from a a court case that struck me saying that, that lots of people were being stopped uh, unjustifiably, but, we would never know how many people were that that was affecting. And this was in reference to what are called Fourth Amendment constitutional violations, where someone is stopped uh, without what's called a reasonable suspicion of criminal activity. And the traditional way that this is looked at by the courts is that you interview the people involved, the individuals who are stopped, the police officers involved, any witnesses, and then you have to come to, you know, you hear everyone's story, and then you have to come to a decision. And, you know, in New York, 
at the height of stop and frisk, you're talking about half a million people stopped a year. And so there's no way that you could go and interview people in all of these cases. And so kind of the first project that I worked on that was at the intersection of machine learning and policy was trying to develop a method to estimate how many people were being stopped uh, in, in violation of this constitutional protection uh, against unreasonable stops and, and seizures. And so we ended up um, it ended up being a pretty straightforward uh, project, but the the result I think was was striking, at least to me. We estimated that something like forty percent of people were being stopped with with less than one percent chance of having a weapon on them. You know, again, it's not like totally clear what the bar is for reasonable suspicion. I mean, the the courts have have I would say adamantly refused to put a probabilistic threshold on on that kind of phrase reasonable suspicion, but I think a lot of people, including myself, would say one percent is pretty low, and if you have forty percent of people who are are being stopped without even a one percent chance of of having contraband of having a weapon on them, um, you know it really raises the question of whether or not it it meets that constitutional threshold that was I think interesting and revelatory to me that that these machine learning tools could be used in these contexts that were very different from what I was traditionally, you know, doing, like you know, maximizing click-through rates, saying that, you know, just to give an example. And so it was it was very different domain and something that I uh, became quite interested in pursuing. And at that point, I I more or less at the same time moved to Stanford and then started really trying to understand what these computational, statistical, I and mean, specifically machine learning methods could add to our broader conversations about policy and social issues. Uh, so that experience awakened you to an interest in the application of machine learning and, and data science to these social challenges. How did you, you know, what were some of the first things that you did to really dig into that to understand how to apply them. Yeah. So in the, literally the first project that I started when I came to Stanford was uh, a collaboration with a journalist here who was interested in in understanding police practices across the country. So again, this was very close to the work that we were doing in New York, uh, revolving stop and frisk. And the basic question was to see if we could quantify some of the um, potential discrimination that was happening in police encounters. And so again, it's like if you kind of backtrack to you know five, seven years ago, there was there were a lot of conversations happening around police practices, but to the most for the most part, these were kind of compelling stories that people would tell about their own experiences, but there was a lack of of data that we could bring to this problem. And I say this not at all to minimize the, the, the value of these stories that people were telling, but to highlight some of the challenges that we were facing at the time where, where we just didn't have any, we didn't have any broad systematic way of looking at policing across the country. We had these disparate stories, these incidents, these news reports, but we didn't have a way of bringing this all together. 
And so we started on this project and, you know, I was like, admittedly pretty naive. I was like, okay, this is great. This is super important. And, you know, we're going to spend like a year and we're going to try to collect all this data and try to make, make some sense of it. And then hopefully that'll add to this conversation. Uh, now I think this is six years into the project. We're still going. Um, wow. It's been, uh, uh, it's been extremely difficult. Um, we filed hundreds of requests, public records requests, FOIA requests uh, with state agencies, um, with municipal police departments. We have a team of maybe, you know, something like 10, 11 people who have worked on this project, probably over 10,000 hours of work just compiling the data. And so this is what we call the Stanford Open Policing Project. And there are really kind of two big challenges in that project. Uh, the first is the data collection and the standardization, which was um, extraordinarily difficult. So you can imagine you get information from or even 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 getting information from a department in any form is extremely difficult. But when you get that information, it comes to you in paper records, it comes to you in CDs, it comes to you in all sorts of, you know, different formats. And then coercing that, coalescing that into something coherent is extraordinarily difficult. So that was the first challenge. I mean, formats aside, how do you even capture the salient aspects of a police stop? It's, it's, we didn't know how to do it. And so we took a very narrow um, a view of this, and we said we're going to collect as much information that we can, we can, but really we're going to focus on uh, searches, uh, police searches, and because that's something where we felt that we could develop a machine learning toolkit for understanding how these how these searches are carried out and the extent to which there might be discrimination in that particular police action. And so we spent several years both collecting, cleaning the data, and then also developing statistical methods to audit police search behavior. And what we found, um, again, perhaps unsurprisingly, but I, I do think it's sort of, uh, it was, I, I do hope that we're bringing something new to that conversation, is saying that we, that we did find, um, I would say, pretty compelling statistical evidence that the threshold for searching individuals across the country, black and Hispanic individuals across the country, was lower than the threshold for searching white individuals. And so these are conditional on someone being stopped. So people will be stopped for all sorts of reasons, maybe speeding, maybe um, reasons that are that are less directly related to, to a traffic violation, for example, a broken taillight. Um, but there are you know, various reasons that people are stopped. And then after someone is stopped, we can ask what what is it that prompts a search? And so a search might happen somewhere between 1% and 10% of the time, depending on where you are. And what we're finding pretty consistently is that that threshold for searching Black and Hispanic drivers tended to be substantially lower than the threshold for searching white drivers. And that's what we took uh, as evidence of, of bias in that particular uh, interaction. And you asked, what is it that prompts a search? Did you have characteristics in your data that was able to answer that question? What specifically uh, prompts the search? Like, are the officers required to report, you know, what their suspicion was? Yeah. So, it, again, it depends, given the plurality of uh, diversity of, of jurisdictions that we're looking at, it, it varies a little bit from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Uh, but broadly, I would say there are Kind of two reasons that people are conducting searches. Uh, by and uh, the, the kind of predominant reason is suspicion of, of drugs. Um, 
so rel- usually relatively low level drugs, you know, think marijuana, um, like small amounts of marijuana. Um, and then the second is officer safety. So, so think of a weapon. And so these are the two big reasons for carrying out a search. What, was it ultimately looking at kind of the relative success rates of finding the thing that they were looking for once they started the search? That's exactly right. And so the, I mean, the simplest thing, and this actually, this kind of, this is what's called the hit rate t- test or the outcome uh, test. It goes back to Gary Becker, the Nobel laureate in, in economics. And it's a very clever idea. It just says, let's look at the rate at which an officer recovers contraband. So let's say you're looking for drugs. How often do you actually recover drugs? So let's take an extreme example. Let's say that when an officer is searching for drugs, they end up in the, in they search uh, a black motorist, they find drugs 1% of the time. But on the other hand, let's say when they, when they, when they search a white driver for drugs, they find drugs 99% of the time. So intuitively that suggests that they're only carrying out that search of a white driver when they're really sure they're going to find something. But for a black driver, they're willing to carry out that search on much less suspicion. And so that's evidence of a double standard. And again, we would we would think of that as a discriminatory um, search threshold. And so it's, a, it's a, so it's a great starting point, this kind of hit rate analysis or outcome analysis. What we discovered is that the test itself, while informative, has all these kind of funny statistical anomalies. And so it could be, and this is what we found in some jurisdictions, that the hit rate for finding uh, contraband on black drivers was sometimes higher than the hit rate for finding contraband on white drivers. And so the typical Becker-style analysis would say that the officers are discriminating against white drivers in that situation. And we thought that was pretty unusual. Um, and so it's like maybe there was maybe there are situations where there wouldn't be any discrimination, but we thought it was you know a little bit unusual that there was actually active discrimination against white drivers in these types of police interactions, given everything we know. And so we dug into this test and we found out there, there even though it's quite intuitive, um, there are all sorts of things that could throw it off. And so we designed a new test, what we call the threshold test. Well, what are some examples of the things uh, that would throw it off? Yeah, so it's a really good Beyond question. Beyond just not stopping any white drivers. Yeah, so it's, really, so it's a really good question. And so this is what economists call uh, the problem of inframarginality. So let me give you uh, an example of this. If I could hit pause on that, because I don't want to forget this. You you um, described the the test, and I forget the name of the Nobel laureate, but the the suggestion was that if this was a nuanced um, test, or maybe even it contributed to him winning the Nobel Prize. But it seems obvious. Like, what am I missing? What is yeah. baked into this that is beyond what you might expect? So, so I think what's what's great about this test is that. In hindsight, it's it, you're right. It is obvious. You know, it feels obvious. I would say th- th- it wasn't the way that people were thinking about it at the time. So the way that most people, and I would say still, the way that most people think about detecting discrimination is looking at rates of action. So looking at search rates. And so you might say, let's look to see: is it the case that black drivers are being searched more often than white drivers? And in fact, we see that that's true. We see that black drivers are searched about twice as often on average across the country than white drivers. So you don't drivers. have a baseline or a ground truth or anything to compare it. Exactly. And so the standard way that people address this issue is starting 
to adjust for various factors. So they're saying, okay, let's adjust for where you are. Let's adjust for the time of day. Let's adjust for, you know, maybe the type of car you're driving. Let's adjust for all these things. But ultimately, you can't really adjust for the fact that maybe the officer sees something that's not in the data, and that's what is prompting the search. And so Becker had this very, very clever insight, and you're right, that in retrospect, it's totally obvious, uh, but at the time, it was quite clever of saying, let's turn this problem on its head. Let's not look at the rate at which we're searching people. Let's look at the rate at which those actions are successful, and that gets around what statisticians call omitted variable bias, that now we don't have to know exactly why did the officer or the bank manager or the hiring manager decide to take action. Let's just look at whether or not their decision was ultimately successful. Great. And then you were about to introduce Another statistical term, statistical anomaly. Yes, yes, like yes. And, and so this is a funny term. It's called the problem of inframarginality. And I'd say inframarginality. Not, it's 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 not um, uh, it's it's not that common. It's not even that common in economics. Um, it's you know we sort of stumbled upon it when we were going through this literature. And here's the idea that our notion of discrimination intuitively is based on a double standard, whether or not officers are applying a double standard when they decide to search individuals of, from different race groups. Now, hit rates, the search success rate, doesn't directly tell you the standard that was being applied. It just tells you how often those decisions were successful. And so, the funny thing is, let's say, and, and we actually see that this is happening in some jurisdictions, let's say that officers are discriminating by applying a lower standard when searching black drivers relative to white drivers. But let's say that there's a group of black drivers who, if you search them, you're very likely to be successful. So, so in some cases, you might actually see the contraband sitting on the passenger seat, or you might see some strong evidence that suggests, if I search this person, there's like a 90% chance I'm going to find something. Now, because there is this group of really high likely to find contraband drivers, and if they're not equally distributed across race groups, that can boost your hit rates, even though you're applying a lower standard on average when searching black drivers in this hypothetical. And so it's a very kind of subtle phenomenon. And it's it's not only kind of subtle to see that it could be happening. Um, in theory, it's subtle to see if it's happening in practice. And so I would say we made sort of two contributions to that literature. And the first was to find evidence in the data that this is something you really do have to worry about. And it was triggered by the fact that we were seeing all these cases where Becker's test would have concluded that you're, you're, you're discriminating against white drivers. And just kind of naive um, analysis, even though it's super intuitive, would suggest something that we really had strong reason to believe wasn't really happening in the world, that we didn't think that dry, that officers were discriminating against white drivers. It, it seemed odd. You know, not impossible, but it definitely, you know, got us scratching our heads when we saw that pattern. Um, and then the second contribution was developing this, what we call the threshold test, that tries to get around this problem of inframarginality and directly infers that standard of evidence itself, not just the hit rate which is a proxy for the standard. It's a lot, I know. So it's uh, it's it's definitely <laughs> there's it's part of 
this description suggests to me, you know, some kind of statistical approach where you, instead of assuming a single distribution, you assume two distributions or multiple distributions, depending on how many of these classes that you assume and then trying to, you know, I don't know, fit a stop to a distribution or something like that. That's exactly right. And so the idea, and this was Becker's insight, is that it's possible in theory that drivers are carrying contraband at different rates. Like we don't know, but if I see elevated search rates for one group, I at least have to be open to the possibility that one group is carrying contraband more often than another group. And that might be a non-discriminatory explanation for why they're being searched at higher rates. And so the idea for the threshold test was let's try to find a way to explain the results that are consistent with elevated search rates, but also consistent with the hit rates that we're seeing that would explain all of these different things at the same time. And statistically, what we're trying to do is find distributions of risk that match all of these observable features in our data. Drill into that, uh, the observable feature, does the data that you receive report on beyond that the individual was stopped and a search cause, does it report some kind of uh, feature that allows you to separate the stop into multiple classes? Yeah, it does. I mean, again, when we're lucky, when we're not lucky, it's all lumped together. But when we're lucky, we can... um, get rid of, I would say, what are what are sometimes called non-discretionary searches. And so this might be an impound, like once a, a vehicle has been impounded, then an officer will carry out a search, just kind of part of the process. And so we want to throw those out because those aren't really directly predicated on suspicion of anything in particular. It's just part of the procedure. Um, when someone is arrested, then often a search is conducted afterwards. So it's called a search incident to an arrest. Again, not really predicated on specific suspicion. It's just what the procedure is. And so we try to throw out all of those. And we, and we leave what we think of as discretionary searches that are really directly tied to suspicion of, of contraband. Are you trying to classify those searches that are left based on some feature that says, oh, well, in this search, there was a gun sitting on the passenger seat. And so this was one of these high risk situations versus the other, or is the idea that you don't actually have that information in the data. And so this threshold is being used to try to um, associate the different stuff. So that's it. So, So in theory, the test is supposed to be able to distinguish between those without the information directly. Now, in practice, of course, it's trickier. And what what we're finding that gave us a little bit of confidence in some places like North Carolina, we had particularly good data. And we were able to, you know, we we, we asked the test to try to infer what was going on without explicitly giving it that information. And it turned out, though, that some of this information was in the data also. So we could look at these stops that were being flagged as potentially high risk and we say, oh, in fact, the officer marked that this was, quote unquote, a plain view search, meaning that they saw evidence of something in plain view, of contraband in plain view. And in fact, the test was able to infer that without us directly providing that information. 
And so this gave us some confidence that even in places where we don't have that information, we could apply it and it would try to automatically infer what was going on. And I saw a note that the data set that you've collected of these stops is now over 100 million traffic yeah. stops. Um, yeah, we are. I think Over are, what period of time is that? That's an insane number. Yeah, we've actually released over 200 million uh, traffic stops from across the country. You know, it varies by jurisdiction, but going back about 10 years, um, wow. in, everything is publicly available now. Yeah, so if you go to openpolicing.stanford.edu, you can just go and download everything. Um, we've we've made it super easy, or what we think is super easy to use. We've cleaned it all up. We've standardized it. Um, a lot of uh, uh, researchers, policymakers, uh, law enforcement agencies, uh, reporters, lots of different groups, uh, community activists, a lot of different groups are using the data to um, kind of uh, audit their own jurisdictions, to uh, help improve local practices. And so we're super supportive of all of those uses of the information. We analyzed in about, of those 200 million stops, about 100 million were in good enough shape that we could statistically analyze, but we have released everything. And so we hope that other people continue um, working on it. Um, we've already seen some positive outcomes from releasing the data. Uh, one thing that I was particularly happy to see is is in collaboration with the Los Angeles Times, they did their own analysis using uh, the open policing data and um, using the threshold test and using other uh, other statistical tests, which they uh, complemented with with on the ground reporting. And about a week after they released their reporting, uh, the LAPD dramatically reduced their stop practices. Are there questions that you wish people would try to answer based on this data? Do you have a, or, or things that you wish people would do to help support the project in terms of, you know, we've got a pecking order of, you know, these are the 10 things that are wrong that, hey, if someone just magically did this, yeah, uh, it'd be great. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think they're like kind of, they're sort of maybe three big things that I would like people to do. I mean, one is making everything super local. And so our analysis was broad by necessity across the country. We have, I think, something like you know, 100 jurisdictions represented. And we can't go in and look at the idiosyncrasies of any given jurisdiction. And so we are counting on local journalists, policymakers, community activists to look at the data for their communities and try to understand what is going on and try to you know push law enforcement agencies to improve practices. And so that's not something that we can do. And we've tried to set a template for doing this nationally, but we we really we know if there are anomalies in any specific jurisdiction, we just can't um, we don't have the bandwidth to deal with that. And so that's where we've seen kind of the most direct consequence is when people like in Los Angeles, when they go in and they really make it their own. And um, especially if they're uh, kind of complementing the data analysis with, with reporting, um, we think that that can make a big difference. The second big thing is we need to figure out how to make sure this project moves forward. We've spent something like six years doing this, but I'm not sure how much we can do going forward. And this was kind of an enormous kind of commitment of resources. And I would love to see this project continue and even expand, but I don't know what the best way is 
to make that happen. And so I, I hope that other people will will take up the cause and and again make this project their own and and help you know filing these records, cleaning the data. We released all of our code. We've tried to make this um, easier for other people to to do themselves, but it's hard. It's very difficult to do. But I am hoping that there'll be someone who can 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 help take this up. And then the last thing um, is really on the, the ML stat side is that there is a lot of work that needs to go into still understanding what does it mean to have an equitable police interaction. And part of this is statistical, part of this is policy. Um, but even when we understand some of the policy issues, it's still not clear how to measure them statistically. And so we, you know, we did the, the threshold test, which I think is a, a good first step or maybe a good second step into this problem of understanding potential bias and search decisions, but it's really an early um, foray into this area. And I would love to see more people create more nuanced ways of measuring um, potential discrimination in that action, in that search action, and then more broadly in every type of, of policing action that's happening. So that's maybe a good opportunity to segue to uh, the paper, The Measure and Mismeasure of Fairness, a Critical Review of Fair Machine Learning. Is there a connection between these two works beyond the kind of application of statistics and computational approaches to policy questions and, and problems? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very directly related. So all of the insights pretty much that we got in the five, six years that we were working on understanding bias in human decisions, we translated quite directly to understanding bias in algorithmic decisions. And even this, even at the technical level of this problem of inframarginality, the exact same issue comes up when we're talking about bias in algorithmic decisions. And so it was really just a direct continuation of that work. We didn't know it at the time. And so we were like, oh, this is like interesting. <laughs> And um, kind of over the course of, of thinking about this problem, we're like, actually, these are like deeply connected. And, and, and then we you know, kind of put all the pieces together. We're like, oh, you know, really, it's the same problem. It's just two sides of the same coin. All right. Well, can you walk us through the kind of the goals of the, this particular paper? Yeah. So the background of our paper is that there, there are many in the computer science community in particular who were interested in, for lack of a better word, mathematizing fairness. And so what does this mean? That means that you have an algorithm, and we kind of all, or at least now I would say many of us have this idea that algorithms are not just sort of neutral, objective um, objects, uh, but they, you know, they, they, they have implications, and we want to ensure that these algorithms that we're using in these high-stakes contexts, for example, judicial decision, judicial decision-making, healthcare decisions, policing, all of these high-stakes contexts, we want to make sure that they're fair, whatever that means. And I think one way that I, you know, you know, I've been trained to think, and I think a lot of other computer scientists have been trained to think, is let's formalize this idea in terms of math. And yeah. I understand that kind of that that uh, impulse to do it but what we saw is that the leading mathematical definitions of fairness that we proposed were missing i think a lot of what was happening 
on the ground and how we interpret what these algorithms are ultimately doing. And it wasn't, at least in my view, it wasn't moving us in a direction where we could really start evaluating the equity of these types of algorithms. And in some cases, definition, in fact, I would say the most popular mathematical definition of fairness was what's called equal false positive rates, equal error rates. Um, in many cases, this can lead us astray and cause one to create algorithms that many people would consider to be patently unfair. Well, let's maybe go through the different approaches that folks take, and then we'll talk about their failures and how folks should be thinking about this. Uh, so you started, you were just mentioning classification parity. Yeah, so classification parity. And so again, I should point out, these are kind of words that we have made up. Um, it, it, the, the field is still evolving, and so there isn't necessarily a common vocabulary around this yet. Um, but uh, this idea of classification parity or equal error rates means that let's say that we have an algorithm and and I'll, I'll give you a concrete example. So an algorithm that might try to assess the risk of some adverse outcome, for example, someone failing to appear at a, at a scheduled court date. And we might say, well, how often does the algorithm get this wrong? Uh, so how often does the algorithm flag someone as high risk who actually would ultimately um, uh, show up to their court date? And so this was called a false positive. And so you can say we you can say the algorithm is fair uh, if it's a case that false positive rates are equal across race groups or across gender groups or across whatever your your um, favorite uh, uh, group classification is. So that's that's one popular definition. And another popular definition is saying that an algorithm is fair if it doesn't use protected characteristic when it's making its uh, decision. So it doesn't use, so the, the algorithm doesn't have access to, for example, someone's race or gender. And, you know, in some ways, this is just blinding the algorithm. And so it's, a, again, an intuitively quite appealing thing that I can say, okay, well, if I didn't tell the algorithm about someone's race or gender, then how can it be discriminating? So that's another, you know, quite popular uh, uh, definition that people use. That um, the big challenge with that one being correlations in you know zip code and race, for example. Yeah, so it's it's super challenging. And so one kind of common objection to to that blindness notion of fairness is that there's lots of stuff that is correlated with race that's not race itself, like where you were, you know, where you grew up, um, where you live all of these aspects that really feel like they might be a proxy for race. Now, the problem is everything is correlated with everything else. And so it's not even clear where to draw the line, like what constitutes a proxy and what, you know, what is kind of an innocuous correlation. Um, so that I think has been pretty well understood for a long time. Um, one thing that's a little bit less well understood is that in some cases you might even want to have you might want to include the protected characteristic in your algorithmic decision. And so this strikes people as unusual. Let me give you an example. In the decision or in the, uh, in the algorithm? In, in, in both. You know, there are approaches that people are proposing that include the pr protected attribute in the algorithm so that the algorithm or the model can ensure anti-correlation with that attribute. Yeah. But that's slightly different yeah. than including it in the decision. So I'm, so I, I guess I, if um, I think these are, these are a little bit related. So it's, it's like hard to totally distinguish the algorithm from the decision. So, so let me give you an example where you might use this directly affirmative action. 
So here's a case where a lot of people, including myself, would say that it's completely ethical, equitable to use a protected characteristic, namely race, when you're making that decision about who to admit to a college. You know, hopefully this example points out that there are cases where we very actively want to consider someone's group membership in order to make better decisions. Now, let me give you another example, which is even uh, more subtle and is is more controversial. And I actually don't know what the answer is, but I I think it's an instructive example. So what we found when we've looked across the country is that if you take a man and a woman who have similar criminal history or similar age, um, so these are the traditional things that people use when they're trying to assess risk, women are less likely to reoffend than men. And so, again, men and women of similar uh, background, similar criminal history, similar age, uh, women are less likely to reoffend in the future than men. And so if you have a blind algorithm, an algorithm that doesn't consider gender, you're going to systematically overestimate the risk of women, and you're going to systematically underestimate the risk of men. What the implication of this is, is that if I now just decide to take some action, for example, detain an individual who's deemed high risk, I'm going to end up detaining women who are deemed high risk, who I actually statistically know are not high risk. They just happen to look like the men who, in fact, are higher risk. And so this is a tricky situation because statistically, it's an easy fix. Statistically, I just say that that I know all else equal women are less likely to reoffend than men. And so that should go into my decision-making process. That should go into my, my statistical algorithm. And some jurisdictions actually do this. Wisconsin does this, for example. Um, but the flip side is that there might still be, and I think this is true, that there's kind of a social norm that's being violated. And we don't like to focus on these differences across groups. And there's a real cost to sending the signal that there might be average differences across groups, even when we adjust for certain things. And that's not necessarily saying that this is inherent. It's not saying that it's biological or that it's going to last forever. Um, you know, maybe it's related to, you know, all sorts of things, whether or not you're a primary caregiver or, you know, who knows what it's what it's related to. Um, but it might be a reasonable proxy for figuring out who is higher risk and who's not, but do we want to use that attribute? Do we fundamentally want to use gender when we're making these types of assessments? And I don't know what the answer is. And different people, I would say, have reasonably come to different conclusions. Um, but there's, but the reason I say there's no easy answer is that if you decide to use gender, well, you're using gender, and now we're advertising to everybody that we think this is an important factor to consider. And if you don't use gender, then you're ultimately going to be detaining women at a higher rate than is really necessary to ensure public safety. And so it's very difficult. Um, most, jurisdictions, most jurisdictions that I know of have decided not to use gender, but I don't know. I don't know if that's the right answer. Uh, and again, I think it's, it's just a challenging question that um, to me points out why these kind of hard and fast rules, like saying we can't use protected characteristics, are really trying to sweep some of the hard policy questions under the rug. 
And so is is there a third traditional definition that you looked at, calibration? Yeah. So another definition that, that people use, there are really three. The one, the first is these error equal error rates. The second is anti-classification. And then the third is... Um, is what's called uh, class is, is called uh, calibration, where it says that if I give individuals two individuals um, or two groups of individuals the same risk score, uh, they the the outcome should happen at similar rates. And so if I say that um, here's a group of white individuals that I'm classifying as medium risk and a group of black individuals that I'm classifying as medium risk, then they both should ultimately reoffend at similar rates. And mm-hmm. Uh, if that's not true, then it suggests that something is missing from my my algorithm. That you know maybe that I I I've somehow um, uh, created it in a way that is that that isn't appropriately making use of the data that's available to me. And in my mind, this is an important property to have, but it's a pretty low bar. And so there are many algorithms out there that would have this property that that they um, are are calibrated, but they're not actually algorithms that we would really want to use in practice. And so even something like redlining, uh, kind of this historical uh, example of, of what we now recognize to be a highly discriminatory way of making lending decisions, that if I classify a neighborhood as, as quote-unquote high risk, that that might be true on average, but still the fact that I'm classifying neighborhoods at high risk as a rose as opposed to looking at the specifics of an individual and determining oh you happen to live in a neighborhood that on average is defaulting at higher rates in another neighborhood but you in particular are credit worthy that strikes people i think correctly as being inappropriate and so it's an example of an algorithm which is calibrated uh but is is not really getting at the heart of what we think of as equity. And so what the paper is doing is it's, it's looking at these these three definitions. And yeah, I think we've talked through in introducing these definitions, some of the unique challenges of each of them and, and kind of why they're uh, difficult. Um, but the paper is taking it a step further, uh, if I'm understanding it correctly, and saying, is it saying that it's not that one of these is bad and the other is good, but that they're all bad and that uh, maybe help me understand. Yeah. Like, so where we, does the paper go from here? Yeah, so we, <laughs> we definitely take in, you know, in some ways, uh, like burn the house down approach to this. <laughs> and I don't want to be, you know, the last minute, I don't want to be too pessimistic. Um, I, I, I advocate against taking a formal mathematical view of fairness. I say that, even though my training is in math, all my degrees are in math. Um, so that's what it's coming down to. It's not, it's like, we're going to talk about and introduce these approaches, but they all are problematic. And the answer is not another mathematical approach. It is taking a step back from the math. And and why is that? I, so yeah. So I think that's exactly right. And I, I think you, you know, I think you said it well, that in my mind, it's not that we need more math. Um, it's that we need to understand what is it that we're trying to accomplish. And so if I were to give you a piece of legislation, you know, just traditional legislation, I wouldn't say, you know, give me a mathematical definition that I can apply to the text of the legislation and then tell you whether or not it's fair. 
we sort of recognize that that's not that it's technically difficult to do, but that's missing the point of of what we mean by equity in these broader policy contexts. And I think when we use the word algorithm, it encourages encourages us to think in those mathematical terms, which while it has some value, I think it still misses the goal of any policy intervention, which is trying to improve outcomes down the road. And so that's where I would like the work to go of trying to understand how can we determine what the consequences of any particular algorithmic decision-making system are. And to the extent that we can formalize that, great. But in many cases, I guess I'm personally pessimistic that there's going to be some universal or a small set of, of definitions that one could apply that lets us audit an algorithm and comes out with kind of the green check mark or the red X that says this is fair, this is not fair. Do you have a kind of a keystone example where you know all of the traditional approaches to fairness fail for various reasons? Uh, and we probably won't be able to come up with another measure, but if we take, you know, simple approach ABC, you know, that will uh, get us closer to what we want as a society. It's, so, I mean, I think criminal risk assessments, this is an area that has received a lot of attention. And um, so, so almost all criminal risk assessments are going to violate the equal error rate principle. If you don't use gender, so adopting this anti-classification point of view, it will violate uh, calibration. And if you do use gender, it will violate anti-classification, but it will be calibrated. And so it's hard to know what the right answer is, but you definitely can't satisfy, um, you'll, you'll probably likely violate several of these formal fairness uh, criteria at the same time. Now, what you do here, I think this is super tough. And the way that I think about the problem here is, again, the risk assessment algorithm in some sense is just trying to give you predictions about what's going to happen to this individual. Is this person likely to misquote or not misquote? Now, when I think about fairness, I think about what you do with that information. So one thing that we're trying to do is identify people who are high risk of missing court and then um, arranging for them to have door-to-door, free door-to-door rideshare service from their home to court. Because we recognize that a lot of the time that people miss their court date is because they don't have easy access to public transportation. Um, they don't have another way of getting to court. And so taking the exact same information, this like risk, this assessment that you're likely to miss court, um, and saying we're going to provide a supportive service to you, in my mind, makes it much more equitable than if we were to uh, take a punitive approach and say we're going to lock you up, which I don't think addresses the question. To your point, even if your punitive system is based on a much better measure, exactly. Even if you even if you use the exact same information, um, you know, in one scenario, I would say your action is not justifiable, or I would I would not think of it as ethical. And the other situation where you're providing supportive services, I think it becomes much more tolerable. And so it's really in this sense, whether or not a decision is equitable, can be justified, is not so much how accurate your algorithm is, but what you use that information to do. Well, Sharad, thank you so much for taking the time to kind of talk through your research, really interesting stuff. And I appreciated the opportunity to learn about what you're up to. Thanks. It's been a great conversation.
All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.